Hey everybody, it's Brock Falk, and I want to thank you for listening to this message from Heritage Church of Christ. We would be thrilled to share more content like this with you and make it easy for you to share it with others. You can find more messages like this on our podcast, or you can download our smartphone app by searching for Heritage Church of Christ in your app store. But most importantly, I hope this message encourages you to take a next step toward a thriving relationship with Jesus. Enjoy. I I know there's nothing that um, makes a newcomer feel like an outsider, quite like being asked to sing in public and it looks like everybody else around you knows the words and you don't. Uh, So let me ask you to give us another chance next Sunday. We will work on getting these screens fixed up so that that won't be quite such a barrier for you. But I want to thank you for being here. Thank you for joining us for worship and for our message today. My name is Brock. I am thrilled to be able to welcome you to Heritage, whether you're here in person or you're tuning in online. We are a family of people who are trying to take a spiritual journey together. And if you're a regular here, welcome back. If you're new around here, we're happy to have you. And I am personally eager to have the chance to get to meet you and get to know you some. I want to tell you this uh, story this morning about when I was a kid, uh, probably between the ages of about 9 and 14, I was an avid baseball card collector. It was a favorite pastime for me and some of my buddies in the neighborhood. If we weren't outside playing baseball, playing home run derby, you know, in one of our yards with tennis balls, then we were probably inside trading, admiring, collecting, you know, pouring over all of our baseball card collections, and we would haul them from one house to the other so that we could all spread everything out in one room. And we, here we were, we were collecting in what seemed like a golden age of star baseball players like Ken Griffey Jr. and Jeff Bagwell and Frank Thomas and Juan Gonzalez and David Justice and Ricky Henderson, a lot of future Hall of Fame players. But out of all of those Hall of Fame players that were active at that time, my very favorite baseball player of all time was the unsurpassable Nolan Ryan. Now, I know lots of you DFW natives loved Nolan Ryan when he came to the Rangers and finished up his career here in Arlington, but I learned to like Nolan even before that when he was a member of the Houston Astros, which was my local team growing up. And I was such a huge fan of Nolan Ryan that all of my friends in the neighborhood knew if they acquired a Nolan Ryan card, they could use that as a bargaining chip and they were going to get a really good deal, you know, because they were going to be able to swindle me out of some huge stack of other cards because I was so eager to have as many good Nolan Ryan cards in my possession as I could. In fact, over time, I was building up quite a collection of Nolan Ryan cards. I kept them all in these protective cases, and I I had even wound up with one older card from his sophomore season uh, that I thought might be really worth some money one day. I mean, here it was. It was about 1990 or 92, and this card was from like 1968, you know, and I thought that was super old, you know, and so I was excited. I had that case, that that card in a, an extra special protective case, and I kept all of my Nolan Ryan stuff in a separate stash from all of the rest of my baseball card collection. In fact, I had I had all those cards in this yellow safe, and for a ten-year-old, this seemed pretty secure. Now, it's got a little combination lock on here, but it's not the kind of combination lock that you go, you know, three spins to the right and two spins. It's just one number, okay? You just, it would take you 15 seconds to break into this thing if you went slow. But for a 10-year-old, this felt like, well, I'm trying to take care of my stuff, you know, and I wanted to make sure that I kept that special collection of cards really safe. But one year on Christmas Eve, it was probably about 1994, 
We had a family from church over to celebrate Christmas Eve with us over for dinner, and their little girl and my baby brother spent the whole evening playing upstairs. And when the time came for them to go home and we all went upstairs to help clean up the mess that they'd made, I found my little yellow safe on the floor in the hallway, and it was open, and it was empty. And I was bummed. And we searched high and low, and we couldn't find any trace of those cards. And these two kids, my little baby brother, I mean, he was five, you know, and this this little girl, they they didn't even know what what that stuff was. They didn't care. That's not like they tried to take it. They just, they didn't know anything about it. Try as we might, we never could find a trace of any of those collectibles that meant so much to me, which was the beginning of the end of my baseball card collecting interest. I just totally lost heart for doing it after that. But also it was the beginning of the end, or I'm sorry, it was the beginning of a, of a big enduring mystery in my family, wondering whatever happened to those cards. You know, mystery is a good word that we could use to describe the series of messages that we're engaged in here at Heritage right now. We've called this series Greater Love, and in this series we're talking about the death of Jesus on the cross and what it means for those of us who are convinced that it happened. But what we're learning together in this series is that summarizing the meaning of Jesus' death on the cross is not an easy task. You can read through all of the descriptions, all of the explanations, all of the letters in the New Testament portion of our Bible, and all of the New Testament writers are clear on the fact that Jesus died. And they're all in agreement. They're consistent in their argument that Jesus's death, coupled with the resurrection, was a turning point in history, that it changed something big. But if you were to ask any of the New Testament writers, how does Jesus' death save us, their answers would be complicated. They would be varied, and they would be nuanced. In fact, this question of how does Jesus' death accomplish our salvation, it's a bit of a spiritual mystery. The meaning of Jesus' death on the cross cannot be fully and adequately explained. It can really just be described. In the Bible itself, if you were to read through the entirety of the New Testament looking for answers about how and why Jesus' uh, crucifixion saves us, you'd find various metaphors and images that would describe it. There's scripture that points to Jesus' death as the payment of a ransom. And then there's scripture that points to Jesus' death as like the military defeat of spiritual cosmic forces. There are parts of the New Testament that describe the crucifixion as Jesus setting the ultimate example of what obedience to God looks like. And then there are other parts of the New Testament that describe his death as this legal transaction that was occurring on a cosmic scale where something was being paid for. And we're spending this series looking at all of these major metaphors together to help us gain a deeper appreciation for ourselves, for our kids, for our community, for people that don't know about Jesus yet. We're helping gain a deeper understanding of what Jesus' death means for us because For most of us, there's been one, maybe two metaphors that have kind of dominated our understanding of the meaning of the crucifixion. But when we look a little bit closer, what we find is that each metaphor that we've talked about has 
problems. Each metaphor that we've talked about is inadequate. You cannot simply summarize or in, encapsulate the entire thing in one metaphor. In fact, what we've said in this series so far is that as we probe the meaning of Jesus's death, it's a little bit like examining the facets of a diamond. And I had a really cool diamond picture to show you up here on the screen today. Um, but each time you look at a diamond from a different angle, at a different facet of the diamond, you see it a different way. You notice something different, and you, at what you see through it, as you look through it, is a little bit different. And so there's this big theme. We've been talking about big themes. One of the big themes that we, dis- we see described by multiple authors in the Bible is that Jesus' death served as a sacrifice that wipes away sin. And that's the theme that we're going to dive into today. Now, I was going to put all these verses up here on the screen for you, but because we don't have the screens available, I'm going to encourage you at this point, if you're interested, to go ahead and pull out your phone or your Bible and find your way to the New Testament book of Hebrews chapter 10. That's where we're going to be camped out here later in the sermon. Hebrews chapter 10 will be our text for the day, but when while you're finding your way there, I want to tell you the next part of the baseball card story. So last September eight months ago or so, my parents moved out of our childhood home, my, my childhood home. And my parents had lived there for well over 30 years, and there was lots of work to be done to prepare for the move and make the move happen. And so my brothers and I, along with our families, we made the trip down to South Texas, and we showed up to help my parents with their move. But in the back of my mind, Part of the reason I was eager to go to South Texas and be there when all the stuff was being pulled out of that house was that I wanted to search one more time. I wanted to look one last time. 27 years after the fact, I still have this on my mind. I wanted to look one more time to see if I could find those missing Nolan Ryan cards. My safe is still empty. I wanted to check all the closets. I wanted to look in that little attic crawl space that had an entry from my brother's room. I wanted to be able to see as all the furniture was moved out and everything was pulled away from the walls and all the stuff was taken off of the shelves in the closet for the first time in years. I wanted to make sure that there wasn't some spot that we hadn't checked. There wasn't some stone that we had left unturned. And I wanted to see if maybe I could solve the mystery of where my Nolan Ryan collection ended up before mom and dad left that house for good. So I went to South Texas, and my search came up empty. And I resigned myself last September that the mystery would probably never be solved. I had looked everywhere in that house. I was crawling through attic insulation. I mean, places these young kids never went, you know. And I, was, I had looked everywhere, and by now I, I probably will never have the chance to go in that house again. And so we said our, bi- our goodbyes to that house, and my parents and I and Nolan Ryan moved on to the next chapter of our lives in September. And then in January, just two months ago, I got an unexpected private message on Facebook. It was from a cousin that I haven't spoken to in years. In fact, I'm pretty sure the last time I'd seen this cousin, it was Thanksgiving 1994. And he was reaching out because he had something he needed to get off of his chest. He said, Brock, there's a reason that you and I haven't been in contact all of these years. He said, that Thanksgiving when my family visited your house all those years ago, I stole your Nolan Ryan collection. 
He said, ever, he said, ever since then, ever since then, he said, I have felt horrible about what I did. It's been over 28 years since that happened. But my cousin said he has felt horrible the whole time. And he said, I never got rid of the cards. Now, he's moved all over the country. He's lived in a bunch of different places. And he said he's pretty sure that the cards are in a storage unit that he rented that's off on the East Coast. And he's hoping that one of these days, he's going to be able to find them for me. But I want you to hear the quote from what he wrote in his message to me. He said, Brock, I wanted to give it back to you since the day I took it. I'm sorry I took it. I'm sorry it's taken me this many years to tell you about it. Please forgive me. What do you do with your guilt? What do you do when the decisions of your past are still haunting you in the present? What do you do with the feelings that you're carrying around when you know that something you did 40 years ago, four years ago, four days ago, hurt somebody. What do you do with that? I read a story about a man in Ohio in 2018 who mailed in a cash payment for a parking ticket that he had received in Pennsylvania in 1974. $5. It was a $2 parking ticket, but he included some interest. And he mailed it to the police station in Pennsylvania with a note that said, I've been carrying this ticket around for 40 years, and I always intended to pay. Carrying it around for 40 years. What do you do with your guilt? What do you do when your past decisions, your past shortcomings are haunting you in the present. You and I know stories that are a lot worse than parking tickets, don't we? I mean, you and I know stories that are a lot worse than that because you and I know ourselves. You and I know our own history. We know the pain that has been inflicted on us, and we know the pain that we have inflicted on others. We all know the excruciating pain of nagging guilt. We all know what it feels like to wish, wish that we could go back and undo something we said, something we did, somewhere we went, someone we were with. We wish that we could undo something in the past. What do you do with your guilt? As I read my cousin's message about the baseball cards, I instantly connected with that feeling of guilt that he said he'd been carrying all these 28 years. He says, I felt horrible every day about what I did to you. He said, I've wished since the day I took it that I could give those cards back. And I surprised myself when I read that message and I wasn't angry with him. I felt compassion for him because I know what it's like. I know what it's like to feel guilty. 
It's amazing, you know, what it's amazing what people will do to try to manage or alleviate the guilt that they're carrying with them. Of course, you and I can imagine it's common for people to turn to destructive behaviors to try to dull or distract from the pain that you're carrying. Substance abuse, self-harm, these kinds of things are often rooted in guilt that people have not found a healthier way to resolve for themselves. But God did something profound in the Old Testament for the people of Israel by providing a system of redemption and reparation. If you study through the Old Testament portion of our Bibles, if you study through the history of the Jewish people, and let me say, as Christians, we can never remove our story from the story of the Jewish people that is our foundation. Jesus was Jewish. This is part of our history and how our faith came to be. But as you study the Old Testament, particularly if you camp out in the book of Leviticus, you find this intricate system, specific instructions on how the Israelites were supposed to make sacrifices. Now, not all of the sacrifices were about guilt. Some of the sacrifices were free will offerings that were made out of a heart of worship. They were made to express gratitude to God. But the system included offerings that were made for the sins of individuals and offerings that were made for the sins of the community. The system included offerings that were made for sins that people knew that they had committed and also for sins that they didn't even realize that they had committed. The system included offerings for sins that people remembered and sins that people had already forgotten. I mean, it was pretty exhaustive. And then on top of all of that, once a year during a special religious feast called Yom Kippur, which means the day of atonement or the day to be at one with God. Atone means at one meant. And on that special day, the high priest of the Jews would go through an elaborate ceremony and ritual. He would bathe himself in ceremonial ways, and he would put on ceremonial clothes, and then he would offer a a ceremonial sacrifice of a bull to atone for the sins of he and his own household. And then, and only then, he would approach the temple, and he would go into the temple, and he would take with him two goats into the most holy part of the temple or the tabernacle in earlier times. And the priest would sacrifice one of these goats and take that goat's blood and sprinkle a bunch of the blood in crucial places in the temple or the tabernacle to clean that space from all of the sin of the people that had polluted it. You see, God had a covenant, an agreement with the people of Israel, and God always kept God's end of the covenant. But the people were chronic failures at doing this. The people were chronic failures at keeping the covenant. They failed to honor God. They failed to honor the image of God in their neighbors, just like we do. And so this sacrificial system, God implemented this so that the people could have a tangible way to re-engage the covenant to re-enter the agreement, to approach God with humility and remorse for sin and to start afresh, to have a do-over, to get to have a restart. But ultimately, ultimately it was still God who was doing the important relational work here. It was still God who was doing the work of forgiveness and redemption. Sacrifice never changed God's mind. Sacrifice never changed God's heart. But sacrifice was a way of reorienting the minds and the hearts of people back toward a God who has always been rich in mercy. Sacrifice wasn't changing God's mind. 
Sacrifice was a way for the people to be able to reorient their own attention toward the God who had always cared for and loved them. But this sacrificial system had shortcomings. There were times when people would live with no regard for how they were behaving or treating other people because they thought to themselves, well, it doesn't really matter. I can just go make a sacrifice. And that was totally missing the point. There were times when people used the sacrificial system as an excuse to be able to get away with doing what they wanted to do. And one of the other problems with the sacrificial system was that it wasn't actually doing anything to make people pure on the inside. It wasn't doing anything to make people whole on the inside. It wasn't dealing with the guilt that they were carrying with them about their past. In fact, the sacrificial system actually had the effect of reminding people over and over and over again about their past. Every year, there's a big public event where everybody's coming together and we're focusing together and thinking about how sinful we've been in the past. That was one of the problems with the sacrificial system. And it's not a matter of God's plan not working. Quite the opposite, in fact. The truth is, God instituted the Old Testament sacrificial system so that humans could see the impossibility of trying to redeem ourselves. Let me say that again. God instituted the Old Testament sacrificial system, the bulls and the goats and the lambs and the doves and everything in between. God instituted that old sacrificial system so that humans could become aware of the futility of trying to redeem ourselves so that we could come to realize just how impossible it would be for us to truly make amends with God. God always knew that God is the only one that can truly remove guilt, that God is the only one that can truly reestablish innocence. And so, even way back in the Old Testament, even in the days when this sacrificial system was in its prime and was being utilized and it was being actualized in Jerusalem in the temple, God revealed a plan to establish a new way to establish a new covenant, a new agreement with the people, a covenant that would be different from the covenant he'd made with Moses. And God said in Jeremiah, he said that under this new covenant, he said, I will forgive. I will forgive their wrongdoing and I will never again remember their sins. And that brings us to Hebrews chapter 10. And that's the topic of our text today. Hebrews chapter 10, this book of Hebrews, it's an extended commentary on the cosmic significance of Jesus. This book is explaining to an audience that's familiar with Judaism how Jesus fits into the bigger picture. And in Hebrews chapter 10, we are finding ourselves smack dab in the middle of a conversation that's been going on for a few chapters now about how Jesus is a sacrifice that's superior to all of the other sacrifices. In fact, if you were to turn back a couple of pages and look at Hebrews chapter 8, you would find that the writer of Hebrews quoted that long passage from Jeremiah 
Isaiah chapter 31, the passage where God was describing the new covenant that God was going to establish with the people. And so the conversation is going on from chapter 8, 9, 10, and so on, and it's, it's describing the meaning, the significance, the effect of this new covenant that God is creating. And if you've got your Bible with you on your phone or on your lap, I'm going to ask you to just follow along as I read some of these verses from Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, especially because we don't have them on the screen today. Here's what the writer of Hebrews says. And by the way, we don't know who the writer of Hebrews was. Uh, It's one of the few books in the Bible. We really don't have a very good guess. Um, I like to think that this might be uh, one of the, one of the, books of the Bible that could have been written by a woman, and maybe that's part of the reason we don't know, maybe because of the cultural realities of that time. Uh, I've heard it said, maybe Mary Magdalene wrote this book. We don't know. Uh, But your imagination can wander there. The Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, it says, the law, and by that it's referring to the old sacrificial system, the Mosaic law, the law is a shadow of the good things that are coming not the real things themselves, all right? This is a huge statement when it's made to a group of people who have put a lot of trust and confidence and investment in following the law, right? This says the law is not the thing. The law is the thing that points to the thing, all right? The law is, the, is, is always pointing forward to something that's even better that God has had planned. The law is a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the real things themselves. goes on in verse 1b. It never can perfect the ones who are trying to draw near to God through the same sacrifices that are offered continually every year. This is what we've been saying, is that the law, while instructive, doesn't have the ability to actually change people from the inside. It doesn't have the ability to actually put a new heart in somebody. It doesn't actually have the ability to change somebody's will. The specialty of the law is to point out where you messed up, right? The specialty of the law is to tell you where you went wrong. But the law does not have the power to perfect people, even who, even people who are trying to draw near to God by being faithful to the law. I mean, you can do all of the, follow all the instructions to a T, and you could have a heart that's like, you're really wanting this, but the law can't do it for you. The law is not the thing. It's the thing that's pointing to the thing. Verse 2 says, I mean, if the law could do that, otherwise, wouldn't they have stopped being offered? Wouldn't the sacrifices have stopped being offered? If the law had the power to change people's hearts and to fix this problem, then at some point there wouldn't have been a need to do this over and over and over again, right? I mean, you can follow the logic here. The writer says, if the people carrying out their religious duties had been completely cleansed once, if their hearts had been completely remade, if it had worked then no one would have been aware of sin anymore. But instead, verse 3, instead, these sacrifices that we keep making are a, 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 excuse me, they are a reminder of sin every year because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It's impossible. Just can't happen. And then the writer of Hebrews is going to do something interesting here. They're actually going to make a transition, and they're going to quote a passage from Psalm 
40 out of the Old Testament portion of your Bible, but they're going to report that Jesus said these words. Maybe not originally, but that Jesus quoted these words, okay? We don't have any other record of Jesus saying this. The gospel writers don't record Jesus ever saying these words, but that doesn't mean it didn't happen. It just means that some of the words that Jesus didn't, wasn't recorded by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as having said. The Hebrew writer says, therefore, when he, Jesus, comes into the world, he says, and here's the start of the quote from Psalm 40, you, God, didn't want a sacrifice or an offering but you prepared a body for me. You weren't pleased with entirely burnt offerings or a sin offering. So then I said, look, I've come to do your will, God. You remember Jesus in the garden? Father, if possible, if there's any way around it, let this cup pass from me and yet not my will, but your will be done, right? This was Jesus' passion to do the will of the heavenly Father. And so this is why this quote in Jesus' mouth makes so much sense. God, you weren't pleased with entirely burned offerings or a sin offering. And so then I said, look, I've come to do your will. This has been written about me in the scroll. And that's the end of, that's talking about prophecies that have foretold Jesus's existence. And then the writer of Hebrews is going to make some comment about that. He's going to look back to the words of that Psalm and make a little comment. So verse eight, he says above, you didn't want and you weren't pleased with a sacrifice or an offering or with entirely burned offerings or a purification offering. Okay, Now you can get way into the weeds talking about all of the different types of sacrifices that were prescribed in the Old Testament portion of the Bible, but the consistent message that we find in the Old Testament is that God never needed burned animals. God was not, didn't need anything from humanity. God did not need bulls to be set on fire. God did not need goats to be set ablaze. That was not the point. So when Jesus said, God, you didn't want all of these things, and then he said, verse 9, look, I've come to do your will. And the writer of Hebrews says, when Jesus said that, when Jesus submitted his life, not just his ritual, when Jesus submitted his life to doing the will of God, he puts an end to the first covenant and establishes the second. Verse 10, we have been made holy by God's will through the offering of Jesus Christ's body once for all. This is what Hebrews has to say about the meaning of Jesus's death on the cross. That through Jesus's death on the cross, and let me stop there. There's nobody, nobody who participated in putting Jesus on the cross who thought they were offering a sacrifice to God. Okay, The Jewish people, the Jewish leaders who were helping to orchestrate all of that and demanding that the, that the government officials crucify Jesus, they didn't do this because they thought they were making a sacrifice to God. 
Herod, the king of the Jews, didn't think that he was making a sacrifice to God by sending Jesus on to be punished by Pilate, the Roman governor, who didn't think he was making a sacrifice to God. None of these people thought that that's what they were doing. But in hindsight, in retrospect, as the followers of Jesus, the disciples of Jesus started connecting all the dots and reviewing all the prophecies and putting together all the pieces and coming to realize exactly the significance of what had happened on that day outside of Jerusalem, as they got to that point where they put all of those pieces together, they came to realize what verse 10 says, we have been made holy by God's will through the offering of Jesus Christ's body once and for all. So we didn't know it was a sacrifice, but on this side of it, we realize now it was the sacrifice we need. Because what happened is the priest offered himself as a sacrifice. The priest himself became the victim. Read the rest of the passage beginning in verse 11. The writer of Hebrews says, every priest stands every day serving and offering the same sacrifices over and over, sacrifices that can never take away sins. All right, did you get that? Every pri- He's talking about the priests that work at the temple. Every priest stands all day. They keep doing this same routine. It's not changing anything. It's just kind of maintaining. But, verse 12, but when this priest, now we're talking about Jesus, When this priest offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, what did he do? My passage says he sat down. The previous verse said every priest stands every day serving and offering sacrifices, doing this same thing and over over and over again. But when this priest offered this one sacrifice for all time, he sat down at the right hand of God, at the place of honor, at the place of power, at the place of glory. He sat down at the right hand of God, and since then, this priest has been waiting until his enemies, sin and death, are made into a footstool for his feet because he perfected the people who are being made holy with one offering for all time. It says this one This one sacrifice was the sacrifice that humanity needed. This was the one sacrifice that changes everything. And the Holy Spirit affirms this, verse 15, the Holy Spirit affirms this when saying, and here's a quote from that chapter in Jeremiah 31, when God promised the new covenant, this is the covenant that I will make with my people. After these days, says the Lord, I will place my law in their hearts. Rather than the law being this external thing that just constantly condemns and and incriminates you, God says, I'm going to put my law in their hearts. I'm going to give them a heart that wants to do right. I'm going to write my law on their minds. I'm going to give them minds that know how to do right. And I won't remember their sins and their lawless behavior anymore. What do you do with your guilt? What do you do when the decisions and the shortcomings of your past continue to haunt you in your present? 
What do you do when the things that you wish you could have done differently or should have done differently, what do you wish, what do you do when the things you wish you could change, you just keep being reminded of them all the time, over and over again, and feeling embarrassed and ashamed and hoping nobody else finds out. Religion says, just keep coming to worship with your guilty conscience and keep offering sacrifices to God, hoping that you can finally convince God to stop being angry. Religion says, keep showing up at worship, bring your sacrifice, bring your praise, and see if you can convince God to change his mind. And you'll find yourself asking God, God, did you see how many times I went to church this month? Three out of four weeks. That's above average. God, did you notice how much I gave in the collection plate at church? God, that's, I hope you saw that. God, I chaperoned the middle school retreat. That's got to count like three times, right? I mean, you're thinking I volunteered. I did all the things. I showed up when I was supposed to. I did the ritual. I followed the rules. Lord, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm doing the best I can. Is it enough? Does it count? God, does it count? And religion says you, you just keep making these sacrifices, these offerings over and over again, but it doesn't work. It's never enough. It's not adequate. And so sometimes you might even be tempted to just keep your distance because you're afraid that if you get too close, God might be upset. And so you leave with a guilty conscience and then you come back the next week with this whole new gather, this whole new collection of good intentions and good deeds. And you're going to place these on the altar and say, God, is this enough? How do you deal with your guilt? If you ask somebody who's Jewish, some of them might say, well, we've decided that our sacrifice is now an internal matter, that uh, we, we make these sacrifices on a regular basis to God, but it happens on the inside. Or some of the Jewish people might say, we're looking forward to the day when we can make sacrifices in a temple in Jerusalem again. Talk to some of your Hindu friends, and you might find that in certain sects of Hinduism, they still do offer sacrifices on a regular basis, trying to get the attention of the gods. Ask some of your Muslim friends, and they'll tell you that at Hajj this year, I mean, here in two months in Mecca, they'll sacrifice over 10 million animals. Get your mind around that. Ten million animals will be sacrificed in just a few days. They won't have enough of them there. They'll have to import them from other places in the world. You ask your friends who don't have faith, who are not people of religion, what do you do with your guilt? I just try to ignore it. But you ask a Christian, what do you do with your guilt? What do you do when the sins of your past are haunting you in the present? And the Christian answer should be, I look to the cross and I trust that Jesus is enough for me. I look to Jesus on the cross 
And I trust that that sacrifice that I didn't make, the sacrifice that Jesus made for me, I trust that that sacrifice is enough for me. I trust that when Jesus was breathing his dying breaths and he said, it is finished, he was canceling the first covenant and establishing the new one for me so that I didn't have to continue to try to sacrifice to get God's attention or to earn God's favor or to earn my redemption, that there's no way I could do any of that anyway. It was futile. It was impossible. But I look to Jesus on the cross and I trust that that's enough for me. And I may still stumble and I may still sin, but nothing now, nothing ever will be able to come between me and the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. There is nothing high or low, broad. There is nothing angels nor demons, present nor future. There is nothing that could possibly come between me and the love of God. And God's love is not waiting on me to make the perfect sacrifice because God has already made the perfect sacrifice for me. My sin yesterday and today and tomorrow has been taken away, and so what I have to do is to trust in Jesus.